Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we've taken a little break and uh, done a lot of uh, prayer and fasting and thinking about uh, where we're going in this particular ministry of the church. And uh, I've made contact with people in other parts of the country and actually other parts of the world, talking to somebody from Guam just yesterday uh, about how he was raised in Guam. I had a little understanding of his uh, his family. His parents had been... Uh, prisoners of the Japanese during uh, World War II and uh, survived that Holocaust that uh, their captivity took place uh, back then. And so they had a, and they also from, you know, from old customs and ways, they had a different approach to a lot of things. And it was interesting to hear how he and his father and his brothers all related to one another. And so I'm mulling all these things over, these uh, contacts with different people, what I already know about, you know, the true definition of religion and how it's changed. I heard somebody talking the other day that uh, uh, is actually Josephine, who is a YouTuber. Uh, she's from Nigeria originally, and but was raised in Canada, and she's become very outspoken, very, you know, got a million people following her on YouTube. And she's very conservative in her approach on some things, but yet you, she has some liberal ideas believing that there should be a safety net of the state. I heard just this morning the Pope is talking about we need to outlaw the death penalty. And uh, he talks about the power granted to the state by God. Uh, well, actually, God didn't grant any power to the state, uh, the corporate state, the uh, the governments of the world, all those governments were created not by God, but by people. But God allows you to create such governments. Uh, he warns you in Samuel, First uh, Samuel 8, you know, that uh, if you do create such governments, uh, that uh, they're going to take and take and take and take and take and take, and you're going to cry out, and I'm not even going to hear you because the creation of such governments, the authoritarian states, is... Uh, is a rejection of God to begin with. So, so what do we have if we don't have the authoritarian state to force our contributions to take care of our needy and to fight our battles and to go out and bring justice in the world? What do we have? Well, you we have the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is at hand. It's for the living. It's now. But most people don't understand it. The same as most people think religion is what you think about God. Uh, they think going to church is where you go to get a good feeling, a spiritual feeling, contemplate a few, you know, moral issues. But uh, basically, church is a social club to make you feel good. If you're coming together in the name of Christ, you're not coming together to feel good because Christ didn't come to feel good. Christ came to serve. The purpose of the church is service, not to. Uh, uh, but now, of course, some people think it's uh it's service to make me feel good. <laughs> they count that as a service. Uh, so, but we have a lot of crazy ideas that are just 
totally in conflict with what Christ was teaching, what Abraham was teaching, what Moses was teaching. But uh, we don't know they're crazy ideas because we have uh, paid ministers to make us think that they're good ideas. And uh, the ministers decide what is good and evil and they they present it in a way that it makes us feel better. And uh, we think that we're doing God's will. Well, of course, the Pharisees thought they were doing God's will. They thought they were they had Moses and that they they understood the Torah and that they had read the sacred scripts and were following faithfully what it says in the sacred scripts. Yet Jesus says, if you knew Moses, you'd know me. But you, they didn't know Moses. They were, they were under a strong delusion. They thought they knew Moses, but they didn't. Well, today I know many Jews that are following the teachings of the Pharisees and the, and the, the interpretation of the Torah of the Pharisees. I even know Christians, even Messianic Jews who are reading the Old Testament and even some of them studying Hebrew in modern schools and coming to a conclusion that the Old Testament is saying this and this and this and this and this and this. And it's not true. It's not what it says. It actually is saying something different. And people at the time of Jesus Christ knew that it said something different than what the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees was only one small, well, it wasn't small. It was fairly good size, but one yeah, there were a number of different sects. There was the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and then in, in hundreds of denominations of the two. I mean, there were Pharisees that wouldn't have anything to do with other Pharisees because they thought that they were wrong in their interpretation. Just like you have, you know, Lutherans won't have anything to do with some Methodists and Methodists won't have anything to do with some Catholics and Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever, and they all claim to be Christian. 40,000 different denominations. But the common denominator of Christianity has to be Christ. The definition of a Christian should be somebody who is following Christ. And a lot of people followed Christ at the time of Christ. Even Pharisees, some of them followed Christ. Some of them that were on the Sanhedrin followed Christ. Came to him at night because they didn't want to they didn't want anybody to know that they were listening to Christ. Why? I mean, it's the same thing we see today. That if you have, if you have a conservative viewpoint and you go and speak on a college campus, campus, you'll probably be shouted down. They won't let you speak. The reason they won't let some of these conservatives speak is because they don't have any argument against the rationale of the conservative. Not that conservatives are following Christ either. They follow him here, and they follow him there, but they don't follow him all the way. And again, back to the days of Christ, the Pharisees were literally a political party in a government. There were Essenes that were a part of that same political party. We know there were Essenes on the Sanhedrin. There were other Essenes who wouldn't have anything to do with the Sanhedrin. Because they said the Sanhedrin is is false. It's not following the spirit that uh, of the the Holy Spirit, you know, the divine spirit of God, which is what the original Sanhedrin that was created by Moses was supposed to do. They were supposed to be brought up to the temple and introduced to the Holy Spirit, and they were to be a guiding force 
in Israel. They weren't a legislature. They weren't lawmakers. God is the lawmaker. The, the Levites didn't exercise authority one over the other. They were servants. They came to serve the tents of the congregation, the tabernacle of the congregation. And they were only tithed to according to their service. If they did a good job, people should contribute to them. And, and you know, I heard a liberal uh, speaking just the other day. He was in a conversation with uh, Jordan Peterson. Uh, he was one of the Weissman brothers. And uh, let's see, there was somebody. Oh, I think Ben Shapiro was there as well. It was on the Rubin Report. And somebody has taped these, or I guess they haven't taped them now. They're now they're a digital copy, and and uh, wanted to share it with me to to get my opinion of it. And it was very interesting because uh, the Weisman brothers are socialists. They are progressives. And uh, Jordan Peterson originally. You know, he was raised Christian, but then he became a socialist and he went to college and he got into the socialist party and, and was involved with them. And he came to the conclusion rather quickly that he didn't want to have anything to do with them. That when he thought of socialism, he thought of that safety net that Josephine talked about. Some sort of government safety net. That for the people who fall through the cracks, well, you know, that's the reality is, is what they're doing is they're shifting the job of religion onto the state. And the state exercises authority one over the other. That's the camel's nose in the, in the tent. That when Christ appointed the kingdom to the apostles, he said, feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Provide for my sheep. He's talking, not the average guy who's working hard and, and taking care of his family, but the widows, the orphans, the needy of society. That's what religion was. That's what James defines pure religion, is the care of the needy of society, the widows and orphans, the people whose families are not making it, are falling through the cracks. That is your safety net. The church was your safety net. And the charity of the church was supported not by taxation, but by tithing. Today, we tithe to churches so they can build big buildings. Uh-oh, and send some money off to the missions in Africa or South America. You know, to the poor. But the poor are those who are in need. You know, uh, they may have... A coat, but not enough food. Or they may have enough food, but not a coat. They may have shelter, but the window's broken and they don't have money to fix it and the snow's blowing in. So they have a need. Poor isn't always the abject poverty. It's, it's the needy of society. And, and if it's, if that charity, that if that aid, I mean, people say, well, I'm too proud to take charity, but I'm not too proud to take welfare. Well, welfare is not charity. Welfare is you desiring the state to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You're not too proud to covet your neighbor's goods. And of course, that's what you see amongst a lot of the liberal philosophy today. 
is this hatred of the rich. You know, I gave some statistics uh, to somebody. Uh, there's, there's simple statistics. I mean, a lot of times they don't like facts. Uh, people who have these unreasonable idea that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods. And when I'm talking conservative and, and, and liberal here, these are uh, often political denominations. Well, that's that's actually a very good term, a denomination. You go to the Church of Conservatism <laughs> or the Church of Liberalism. But these are, you know, I know liberals or people who cons- would label themselves liberals that are actually not far from the kingdom. And again, we're, we're talking the Pharisees. There were some Pharisees who were not far from the kingdom. When they heard Christ, they heard what he was talking about. They said, that's good. And they wanted to follow. And they became Christians by following Christ. They weren't called Christians yet because they they weren't called Christians till Antioch. They were Jews. But they were saying, this Jesus, he's got a really good idea. And there was, see, there was no king in Judea that maintained the part of Judea, which was Jerusalem, contained Jerusalem. There was there was King Philip and there was uh, uh, Herod Antipas, but there was no king on the throne in the third part of the kingdom, which contained Jerusalem. And they were looking for one. And some said, Hail, highest son of David. They wanted Jesus to be that king. And he was that king, but he, he wasn't the kind of king that some men were looking for. And that's why some men... Oh, well, I like him when he says this, and I like him when he says that, and I like him when he says this, but when he says I have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, I don't like that. They, Of course, they knew what that meant. You see, because they knew he was rich, but made himself poor. They knew that he was following in the footsteps of his cousin, the Levite, John the Baptist. Who said, if you have two coats, share with your neighbor. He didn't say, if you, uh, if you don't have a coat, apply to the government and the government will give you a coat that they took away from your neighbor. He says, actually do it by charity. And this is the, this is the distinction between followers of Christ, true followers of Christ and followers of the Pharisees or Sadducees or are the other lovers of soft things who who wanted benefits, the wages of unrighteousness, the benefits at the expense of taking them away from your neighbor. And you know, when I go back in history and, and look at people like Tacitus and Polybius and uh, Plutarch, and they're all saying the same thing. Uh, Polybius wasn't far from being a Christian. Although Christ wouldn't come around for another 150 years, he was talking about this idea of making your living at the expense of others. And, and that's that's what's so amazing with the, the modern socialist mindset. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, probably for the next several shows is politics of the mind. You have these labels, conservative, liberal. Uh, socialist, democrat, uh, you have words like republic. 
And these are labels that you put on people and institutions. But those labels are so that you can converse about these subjects. But, you know, if we're going to talk about religion, I have to, every time I talk to somebody about religion, I have to sit down and say, so what do you mean by religion? Are you going by the modern definition of what you think about a supreme being? Or the the one 200 years ago, which was the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And if you're going to perform your duty to God, that includes creating that safety net through faith, hope, and charity, and righteousness, and the perfect law of liberty, which is what the Bible talks about, and what the early church was doing. It was providing a social uh, safety net through charity. Which is what John the Baptist said when he said, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you're trying to provide that social safety net to a government that exercises authority and force the contribution of even the rich, then you're not a Christian. Because you're not following Christ and what Christ said to do. If you're instituting governments of power to provide for the needy of your society by taking away from one class of citizen, rich or poor, doesn't matter, you're taking from your neighbor. You're not following Christ. If if you are trying to create a state of utopia through socialism or democracy or even return to the republic, or what you think is a republic, which most people call an indirect democracy a republic. That's not really what it was originally. That's another word they redefine. The original word republic comes from the original Latin idiom, libera res publica, which means free from things public. It's not an indirect democracy where 51% of the men you elect can take away your rights. A direct democracy, 51% of the people in a direct democracy can take away the rights of the other 49. But in an indirect democracy, you elect lawmakers, not representatives that are going to gather together and talk. I mean, the original Republic of Rome, 500 years before Christ, the Senate, we talked about this in uh, one of our recent study programs, which we will release on the network. You can join the network and you'll see that coming out pretty soon. We talk about the Senate. Well, the original Senate The word just meant old men. They were the elders of the community and they would gather together to link all the different communities because Rome was organized in a similar pattern of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They had thrown out the Tarquinian kings. They did not elect, you know, rulers to exercise authority one over the other, but they did elect the Senate. Through, through these tens, hundreds, and thousands. But that Senate was not lawmakers. They were representatives. They were to connect all the communities so that if they were attacked by the Jutes or the Issacs or the Teutons, they could muster an army to defend themselves. If there was a fire in one area, uh, or a flood or a famine, they could help each other out because these old men would say, you know, we're having real problems over here. We could use your help. And they would send aid one to each other because this made their community stronger. See, in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were doing something different. We're going to talk about that. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
People say sodomy. No, sodomy is the symptom of the sin. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in a time of affluence. They did not strengthen the poor. They weakened the poor. And this is what you see with these modern labels of Democrat and and Republican. You know, all the democratically controlled cities are, they have a terrible problem with the poor. And, and, and they have a whole poor class that's going from generation to generation and not coming out of their poverty. In America, the poorest people could come here, you know, a hundred years ago and become rich within one generation. Still today, uh, we had, you know, one, you know, actually it's about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, cause I'm getting older all the time. I remember the boat people coming from Vietnam. In Malaysia, they would come to this country where you didn't have the war on poverty yet, (laughs) you know, back in the 60s, where it was starting uh, the war on poverty. But they came here, and within a generation, they were well-to-do, and their kids were going to college and becoming doctors and lawyers. And they had their own businesses. And they were poor, and came from another country, didn't speak English. That was the route that the black community was going after slavery. In 1900, 1910, 1920, they were on an upward movement in society. Owning businesses, getting educated, strong family unit. It wasn't until the war on poverty that the black community plummeted into real poverty. You know, it's supposedly it's staying this level, but they're they're calculating, you know, poorness and poverty in a different way. But the reality is, they went from having three percent of the children born in the black community born to single family homes to seventy percent, and they did this in one, well, maybe two generations. And that's why they're poor. It's not because of the color of their skin. It's not because of their genetics. It's because of the socialist state has made it so they didn't have to love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't have to stay married. They didn't have to take care of one another. Christ said that's what we had to do. So we're going to talk about how we get back that way. How the whole society can. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. In Luke 18.10, it says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Now, that statement about Christ telling this story about prayer, uh, he talks about a publican. He's comparing a publican to a Pharisee. He he does the same thing with the Good Samaritan. The Good the Samaritans were were considered a low class of people by the Jews and the citizens of Judea and by even Romans. And there were a lot of pro- problems in the Samaritan community. But yet the Samaritan community, he, he pulls a guy out of the Samaritan community and he holds him up as an example of what we should all be. How he went out of his way with his own money to help somebody in need. A Jew 
who would normally condemn him. While the Pharisees passed him by and, and, and others just passed the guy by and didn't, didn't help him. So th- these are mocking stories. He's, he's being hard on the people. You know, he's made the Pharisee out as the bad guy. And the priest of the temple as the bad guy. And took the lowest class of people, the Samaritan, and held them up as the example. And here he's doing the same thing with prayer. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a publican, a tax collector. Uh, that That's like, that was a bad thing. Because, I mean, taxes were really compelled and really a burden on the people in those days. They, they are today, but, you know, that this is an interesting comparison that Jesus is making. He says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners. You see, because tax collectors would be considered an extortioner. They're, they're threatening you. If you don't give, I'm going to put you in jail or penalize you or whatever. Extortioners. I mean, even a traffic cop, he's going to give you a ticket. You didn't hit anybody, you didn't injure anybody, but you, you violated a statute because you were going too fast or you, you know, you rolled through a stop sign. And so now you, or you didn't have your safety belt on. And so now you owe somebody $150. And if you don't pay it, they, they will arrest you. They'll put out a warrant and they'll put you in jail. That's considered extortion. It's legal. Because you have a contract with the state. They have the right to, you know, regulate your travel. Because of a lot of things. But anyway, so, but still, you have to pay or somebody's going to punish you. But he says in his prayer, I am not as other men are. Extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. And that, that term has a wide spance, uh, at that time. An adulterer was not simply a sexual adultering affair. You were considered an adulterer if you went to these other temples of Rome and applied for their benefits, at least by some. Uh, or even as this publican, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I, of all that I possess. He's comparing himself to the publican and he's saying he does good things. He, and he fasts and he, and he tithes and, you know, he, he, he's not a bad guy, it sounds like. But that's his prayer. He's talking about that he, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I don't do this. And I fast and I tithe. But the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what he's saying. He's he's admitting that he is not perfect, that he is a sinner. And that he is showing this 
remorse and recognizing the power of God that you have to have mercy on me because I don't deserve a thing. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house after his prayer, because he had gone up to the temple, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased. And he that humble himself shall be exalted. So this humbling of yourself, admitting that you don't know, that you aren't good, that you aren't perfect, that you haven't got it all figured out, is absolutely essential. This humble heart where you come to to God with bowed head, bowed heart, bowed continence. This is, this is an important place to come from. If you think you, your church is it and you've already got it all figured out and you read the Bible and you know and, and you keep the right Sabbath and you, you tithe and all this stuff, but you got nothing to learn, that's not a humble heart. You got, I mean, that, that Pharisee, he wasn't doing anything bad. He wasn't, they didn't say he was lying. It just wasn't quite the humble heart of the publican. So Christ is making that very important that we have this humble heart of the of the tax collector. Now he's not saying we're supposed to be tax collectors. I mean you that might be the only job you got. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> but uh uh that's not that's not the point. The point is, is that he came with his humble heart. If you go back and read in Exodus ten three, and Moses and Aaron came in unto the Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of heaven, of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Well. He's he's warning the Pharaoh that he needed to humble his heart. And of course, Moses was there. The people had been crying out for a long time because the burden in Egypt, the bondage of Egypt was great. And the burdens were great. And some people had been crying out for a long time to, you know, God, we're sorry. You know, we, you know, all this was a result of the fact that brothers had thrown their own brother into a pit. And sold him into slavery. Isn't that what we all do? When we apply to the socialist state for benefits. Especially a socialist state that's bankrupt. And is only operating on borrowed money. Aren't we throwing our brother and our own children into a pit? Of a bondage. We're making them a surety for our debt. We want to have the benefit today. And let somebody down the road pay for it. That's going to create a situation where we will be merchandise, where we will be in bondage. And that's what we've already done and our parents have done. it. They were good people. They were nice people. They followed Christ in lots of ways. They had a lot of moral character. Maybe they stayed together and they raised their family. But they were also blind to something that was very important. And this is this is where the humility comes in. We have to be willing to see that we are sinners. 
that we have gone the wrong way. We have looked to men who exercise authority to force our neighbors to contribute to our welfare. We did not create a safety net of faith, hope, and charity. We created a safety net of force and fear and control. And that's a sin. And we have to see that that was a sin. That was the wrong way to go. So Josephine, with all her great common sense, she says there needs to be a safety net. Yes! And that safety net was religion. Religion was how you took care of the needy of your society. That was the safety net. And if you put that back in the hands of the people and the people have Christ in their hearts, that that love of Christ in their hearts, then they will help those who are poor become stronger. I see the spirit of that in, in Josephine and what she says. And I'm just using her as an example. I I have never met her or anything, but uh, I think her YouTube deals. I am Josephine, and I guess that's that is a real name. And she just brings common sense, and and you see this with a lot of the people that are bringing, and they're willing th- that conversation with the Weissman brothers and 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 Jordan Peterson and and Ben Shapiro. I mean, you've got a Jew and uh, actually a couple of Jews in there, um, but one practicing Jew, which is Ben Shapiro, a Christian who became a socialist and then went away from socialism and now sees it as a major problem, this identity politics, which is Jordan Peterson, who is a psychologist. Weissman Brothers, one is a professor of biology and the other one is a mathematician who works on things like the quantum theory and string theory and also is a business entrepreneur uh but they you got socialists and conservatives there i mean shapiro and the wiseman brothers one is progressives and the other one is ben shapiro but they're all sitting down and talking with one another hashing these things out they're trying to find the truth i mean recently in the news Evidently, there was a Twitter somewhere. Uh, somebody tweeted that the uh, president tweeted or something about the press being the enemy of the people. And, of course, then you have people questioning the, you know, the government as to how can you say that the press is the enemy of the people? Well, the press is not a homogeneous group. Anyone who is not the friend of the truth is an enemy of the truth. And anyone who is an enemy of the truth is an enemy of the people. Because the truth shall set you free. But I can tell you this. I can tell you. Somebody else can tell you what the truth is. You can read it in a book. You can whatever. Find it wherever you find the truth. And you will not see it without the humbleness of your heart. You have to have this humble heart where you you look at everything wondering what it has to offer. You listen to everything wondering, is there truth in this? You question everything, every idea that you have, every idea that somebody else has. And you ponder, is this true? You wonder about it. People are always grasping at things as if they're the truth. And then they hold on to those things and cling to those things. 
and they have faith in what they believe to be true. You want to have faith in God, which whatever that is, whoever that is, you want to have faith in that, in righteousness, in right reason. That was another thing I was listening to uh, somebody who considers themselves an atheist. They believe they are an atheist. Yet they live as if there is a God. And they say, we don't need God anymore. We have reason. You know what divine law is? How you define divine law? Divine law is defined as right reason. (laughs) So, God is reasonable. Not everybody's God is reasonable. But the God is reasonable. Because, like I say... You have your opinion about reality. You have your opinion about the truth. I have my opinion about reality. I have my opinion about the truth. But God's opinion is the truth. So whatever God is, God's opinion is the truth. It is reality. It is what it is. It's up to us to find out what that is. And you could get there by reason, but only if you have a humble heart. And personally, now this is what I will share with you from my personal experience, is that you will know the truth because it's a, to, that knowing of the truth is a gift from God. God opens our eyes. God gives us our consciousness. God makes us aware of what is true and what is false. He does it through his Holy Spirit. What they call in the Old Testament in, in, in Genesis, the tree of life. God reveals it to you as a matter of revelation. If you depend merely upon your own brain, that's the tree of knowledge. You're deciding for yourself what is good and evil. You do that because you lack humility. You don't You don't say the prayer of the publican. I can't figure this out. I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. And his mercy is the tree of life. The Holy Spirit. That can awaken us to the truth when we see it. If you read in Psalm 68. Or 69. 32. The humble shall see this and be glad. And your heart shall live that seek God. Now, that's in verse 32, but if you, you want to read that in context, you got to go back to verse 22. And that's where uh, David is saying in the Psalms, and this is repeated by Paul in the New Testament. So this is, a, this is in both Old and New Testament. He says, Let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Now he's saying what Polybius was saying, what Plutarch was saying. The greatest destroyers of liberty are the givers of gifts, gratuities, and benefits. He's saying what it says in Proverbs: If you be a, uh, if you sit and eat uh, with uh, uh, rulers, and you be a man of appetite. In other words, you want to eat at that table of rulers, men who exercise authority, and set that table with that which they took away from your neighbor. Put a knife to your throat, because they serve deceitful meats. It goes on telling you, you're going to be trapped in the very net of your own making. Your safety net will become your prison. 
if you look to men who exercise authority one over the other to provide that safety net. Society needs a safety net, but that safety net should be provided through faith, hope, and charity in that perfect law of liberty. That verse 23 goes on to say, Let their eyes be darkened, that they see not, and make their loins continually to shake. People are always afraid, oh, we need this safety net. We we need the government to provide a safety net. We need to have... <coughs> we need to have this safety net by men who exercise authority because some people won't give their fair share. You know, the amazing thing in, in America today, all these people wanting socialism to go to, which is actually a, the United States has become a socialist government, but they want more socialism because they say, oh, it's not working. And they blame it on capitalism that it's not working. And what the reason is it's having its difficulties is because you've turned it into a socialist state already. It's just now you want more. You know, and, it, and more and more and more. And it's it's becoming a snare and a trap. And it's brought you into bondage. It's made you merchandise. It's cursed your children will have to pay all this back. And now you want to throw off your oppressors, you have to stop being an oppressor. You have to walk in the righteous ways of God. You have to start taking care of one another. In this country, if you want socialism, you could join a co-op. You could create a socialist religion and everybody goes into that socialist... I mean, it's one purse. So everybody, everything that that little organization owns... It will own within that system that they create. You can do this right now in the United States. You can create a cooperative. And you you can run it as a socialist state. And you can buy land and you can farm it and you can uh, build factories and all this stuff. And it's all owned in common. And uh, you get, get you can create huge tax deductions. Because you're all working together in this little socialist state within this democracy. You can do that right now. You don't have to, you don't have to win an election. You could just get together with a lot of other socialists and make it happen. But you go to socialist countries, which are not entirely socialist like Sweden, it's 70% tax. There's no way on earth you need 70% tax amongst people who are all striving and working hard. To provide the benefits. There has to be somebody not pulling their weight. Uh, or somebody pilfering the treasury. Uh, in order to have have a need for 70% tax. That's just crazy. It, the, it, the, the, the cross section of society wouldn't. There would be absolutely no need for that. Especially in a country like Sweden. Has no army. They have no. They're not. You know. Often other countries. Um, fighting foreign wars. But they they don't realize, they don't do their homework. They don't realize where they're going with all this. But anyway, the point is in this verse 23, it says, Let their eyes be darkened, so they can't even see it. To see the truth is a gift from God. It is a gift from that tree of life. It is a gift from the Holy Spirit that allows you to see, to hear the facts and see. But you can't see without that humility. You have to be willing to say, whoa, 
maybe I'm, I went wrong. You know, like Josephine sees so many things that people are not seeing and she tries to share them and tries to awaken them and everything. And sometimes they just won't wake up. They, they their eyes remain dark. They remain blind. And Jesus talks about this. You have to remember the beginning of Jesus' sermon was to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that kingdom was described by John the Baptist and also preached by John the Baptist. If you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. It's an individual choice. There's no power in the state to make you share. It, the power is has to be in your own personal choice. Your right to choose, what the Greeks called exousia. You have the right to choose to take care of one another. You want to live in a socialist state and you live in Kansas, get together with all the other socialists and form your own socialist state. Go nationwide and interact with all kinds of others and you can move all over the country from one enclave to the other. And, and, you you have that right right now. But that's not really the kingdom because Christ wasn't creating a socialist state. Christ was returning every man to his possession so that you have the choice, the exousia, the right to choose. But the reality is for the last 100 years, for the last 200 years, we have been steadily, slowly, inch by inch, and now we've progressively moved farther and farther away from the kingdom and more and more into the ways of Rome and the ways of Judea and Herod and the Pharisees. And so now I'm going to say, open your eyes and see this. But in order to open your eyes, it's going to be painful to realize, oh my gosh, we we went the right way here and we went the right way here and we went the right way here, but we made a wrong turn. Over here, we went down the wrong road. We went the wrong way. And now we have to turn around. In verse 24, he says, Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. That's not a prophecy. That's a reality. And I'll tell you why when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Next. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I said that we would uh, tell you uh, an answer to uh, the quote that I read just before the end of the last hour. And uh, I will. But uh, I'm gonna before I go there, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a uh, shift here to say that the church is not really political in the modern sense of political. Mo- but of course, in the last show, we were talking about uh, the fact that religion used to be the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. The church used to be the safety net for society if if people fell upon need or hard times. They provided for the needy of their community. There's no, there's no point to send money off to Africa and get some sort of good feeling that you've helped out the poor people in Africa or Zimbabwe or, or South America or wherever. 
if you're not already taking care of the needy in your society. And see, that's what modern church, 90%, and I'm being generous here, 90% of the modern churchgoer Christian takes care of the needy in his society by going to men who exercise authority one over the other. That's how they take care of the needy of their society. That's how they take care of their parents. They go to a bankrupt government that's borrowing money against the future to provide for the needy of their society. And people say, well, Social Security, we paid into that. And, you know, no, that's not how that works. And we've got articles up on that, but we're not going to go down that road right now. The fact is, your modern Social Security and welfare systems or social insurance networks that are, or systems in Canada or England or Australia or anywhere in Europe, they're all based on the same concept of Corbin that Christ said made the Word of God to none effect. And we detail that out. But what I'm talking about now is uh, this quote in... Uh, uh, pour out your indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who thou hast smitten and they talked to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity and let them not come into thy righteousness. What the the message there in Psalms 69 is talking about it, and they were talking about how their your table became a snare. They they did the same thing, and you can read our article on one purse. The purse, uh, you know, let's all have one purse, which we talked about. You can actually do that now if you want to go that route, but you should before you go that route, you should read our article on one purse. Because it talks about a net spread before the burden capturing is their blood that will be captured. You, you, there has to be in, in almost every socialist state that you can imagine, there will be people that want to be benefited by somebody else's hard work. You know, they want to share in somebody else's sweat and toil. Not I don't mind sharing in the sweat and toil of others, but it has to be on a voluntary basis. I don't want to depend upon other people to provide for me, and that's why I was up early this morning working <laughs> to, to take care of business and working till after dark last night to take care of business so I'm not dependent upon other people. But in order to be the church, to be that safety net for society... The people have to voluntarily choose to contribute to the church. Well, you can send it all to the Pope who just wanted to outlaw capital punishment because that, you know, that he talks about the state being ordained by God. Your rights were ordained by God, but then if you give your rights to somebody else to make decisions for you, That's what you have chosen to do. That isn't what God has chosen to do. God wants to return every man to his family and every man to his possession. So you have a right to decide what to do with your possession, what to do with your labor, what to do with your life. 
And of course, Christ says, no greater love than has a man than he lay down his life for his fellow man. And that's what you do every time you give charity. You lay down a portion of your life for somebody else. And that's essential if you want God to hear your voice. You want God to hear your prayers. And he's talking about their table becoming a snare. And and Peter talks about through covetous practices, you'll be made merchandise and you'll curse your children and you'll be entangled again in the elements of the world. And, and the pig will return to his mire and the dog to his vomit because we will go back to those ways, back to the bondage of Egypt. And I told you that Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, there's a great detailed paragraph there about what will happen when you look to men who exercise authority. They will take and take and take and take and take and God will not hear you anymore. But you also will not hear God. Your eyes will be darkened. You will not see the truth and you will you will become uh, desolate. You will not own your tent. You will not own your own house. You will not own your own labor. You will not own your own children. And I hear the complaints coming out of people now that that the state can take away your children. They can force your children to get vaccinations. They can force your children to learn this this thing and that thing. And countries like Sweden, it's against the law to teach your kids at home. You go to jail for teaching your kids at home. America, we can still do that, but they're they're encroaching on that all the time. And and the fact is, is you don't own your house. You know, we have a whole article that explains this in great detail. I've taken this to some of the top attorneys in America. You know, summa cum laude attorneys who write law books. And they say, I'm right. You don't own your house. You have legal title. And legal title does not include ownership. I'm quoting right out of the dictionary. <laughs> the law dictionary. It, it, it does not include the beneficial interest in the property. Which is why you can be taxed on your land. Which is a part of that 50 to 70% tax that you probably pay. You don't own your land. You don't own your labor. You don't own your children. And you're in debt. You become a surety for debt. And you go to preparing you and you read these articles. There's just one after another. This takes you down and shows you this in a rational sort of way. We're not going to go through all of that right now. But it's there and it's detailed out. But you have to have a humble heart if you want to see it. Because it's the good news is that you've gone the wrong way. That's actually the good news. If you will hear it, it's good news. If you won't hear it, it remains bad news. If you hear it, now you can do something about it. You can't... Your salvation is not making everybody else do something about it. It's about you choosing to do something about it. And you got into this mess because you didn't care about your neighbor as much as you cared about yourself. You wanted a benefit at the expense of your neighbor. And your parents wanted a benefit at the expense of your neighbor. And they may, I agree that they made it very subtle and so that you wouldn't see it. But you have to come at this like the publican and say, hey, you know, I've sinned. I screwed up. And then you have to turn around and seek another way of thinking, another way of acting. And that takes a humble heart. 
So in in this quote from Psalm 69, he's saying, add iniquity unto their iniquity. You know, a burden. You know, the governments are there to punish the wicked. Who are the wicked? The ones who created the government. Now, Christ created a government. We call it the church. It may not be doing, your church may not be doing what Christ said. It may be, I don't know, I don't know what your church is, but all churches are not doing the same thing. And all churches are not doing what Christ said. But nobody gets into heaven because they belong to a church. As a matter of fact, we don't even want you to belong to His holy church. We want you to belong to God. We want you to follow God. We don't want to, we're not speaking ex cathedra. We're sharing with you what we've seen. He says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not, not be written with the righteous. And remember, Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is not righteous to covet your neighbor's goods. It is righteous to lay down your life for your fellow man. He goes on to say, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. What he's talking about, what the publican talked about. I am poor and sorrowful. He's saying, I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, that word, I mean, the the word Eucharist, which we talk about the Eucharist, this little wafer of bread. But the Eucharist is not a little wafer of bread. It, the Eucharist means thanksgiving. Thankful for the opportunity of giving. You want God to care about you, you have to care about others. You have to put others before you. you if you're going to be a good father and a mother, you have to put your children before you. You have to sacrifice your time. If you're going to be a good brother, you have to put yourself before, uh, I mean, you have to put your brother before yourself. That, that's, that's the key. What Christ came to serve, he had to put others before himself. This is the key to the kingdom of heaven. And so now what is the kingdom of heaven like? And how does it form? And what what is the geography of the kingdom of heaven? Where is it located? Well, it's located within you. But it will manifest itself in what you do. So what did the early church, how did it appear in comparison to what we see the church doing today? For one thing, when the church was founded, there were not 40,000 denominations. There was one denomination. And that was Christ. He was the denominator, the common denominator of all the churches. In the gatherings of these churches were where people were working out their salvation with fear and trembling. In Matthew 18, 4, it says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 23, 12, it says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So Christ is repeating this over and over again. 
You should not be proud of your denomination. You should humble yourself before the denomination of Christ, the denominator of Christ, who came to serve, to wash the feet of his apostles, to wash the feet of our neighbors, to be there for one another. You gather together to serve others who gather together with you. How do you gather together? Christ commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and a thousand. To the tune of 5,000 people. He did this at, at, at the loaves and fishes. They had to sit down in this pattern, which was the pattern of almost all free governments from the beginning of Rome to the Teutons, all the way back to the days of Nimrod. They gathered in these small groups of ten, linked together by a ministry of servants. Not a ministry of doctrinal dictators who are going to tell you what to think and what to believe and what to say and what to do. That's not the role of the church. The role of the church is to be that safety net of righteousness to take care of one another. This is why you're to be gathering together in these tens and linking the tens together with ministers in groups of tens. In other words, so that you, when you tell your minister what your, your congregation may need or you may need even in your congregation, your congregation can't help you out. It's too much. You tell your minister and he will tell his congregation of ministers and now a hundred people seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness will know about your needs. And and you connect those hundred with another group of hundreds until it's thousands of people will know about your needs. And then you give according to their their need and according to the services that will strengthen the individuals in those communities. And eventually you will incorporate in this network, this free assembly of networks, everybody in South America and everybody in Africa, everybody in Liechtenstein, everybody everywhere. Yeah, I mentioned Liechtenstein. Uh, the Prince of Liechtenstein, Hans Adam II, he said the state should treat its citizens like an, an enterprise treats its customers. For this to work, the state also needs competition. We therefore support the right of self-determination at the municipal level in order to end the monopoly of the state over its territory. Now, somebody considered this, you know, talking about the right of self-determination, you know, and that he's setting the individuals free. But the reality is, is he said self-determination at the municipal level. (laughs) And what he's doing is he's creating competition within the different cities, municipal levels, of his little tiny Liechtenstein, which is, I think, one of the smallest countries, uh, you know, recognized in the United Nations. 
the kingdom of God supports the right of self-determination at the individual level. Because the congregations are not corporations. They're not even unincorporated associations. They are free assemblies. They're uh, a way in which to communicate with everybody. And uh, it's, it's a spiritual common purse. Uh, which God will redistribute the blessings of. But it's in this physical world you have these free assemblies and they gather together to serve one another. There's your safety net that takes away no individual freedom. No individual right. All the state is, all the power the state has has come from the people that God originally endowed with the right to choose, the exousia. The personal right to choose. That's the self-determination. The kingdom of God takes away no right of self-determination. So, how does that translate into a system of government? We're talking a free government. See, if I say government, immediately you're thinking a government of power. The reality is the Bible tells us never return to the bondage of Egypt. It tells us this, that that if we should actually write that down. That if you create a government of power, any kind of power any kind of incorporation of your rights to choose into the hands of a body politic. You should write down four restrictions, or five restrictions, upon that body and read it to them every day. And one of them is they could do nothing to return you to the bondage of Egypt. What's the bondage of Egypt? Everything belongs to the state. He says here, the monopoly of the state over its territory. He doesn't say the state doesn't own the territory. He's just creating this self-determination on a municipal level. It really isn't a very good statement. It's really not kingdom of God statement. But it sounds good to some people because they don't understand. Because they haven't had the humility to take the personal responsibility for the bondage they are now in, which is the bondage of Egypt. In the bondage of Egypt, 20% of everything you earn belonged to the government. 20% belonged to the government. You know, if you made $100, 20 of them had to go to the government. You know, of course, they didn't have dollars then. They had uh, little beetle scarabs. But the value of your labor, 10% of your labor, 20% of your labor, one-fifth, had to go to the government. So they were able to create this Corvee system where you literally would go, you you might literally have to go and work for the government for 20% of the year on government projects. And they built dams and they built aqueducts and they, they built these uh, ways in which to irrigate and they made lots of money with those things. And it was, uh, you built harbors and what have you. Well, I'm sure there was a way, and there appears to be, because we see this in subsequent governments that came about, where you could pay in a certain amount of money and not have to go do the job. You could actually send somebody else in your place, and you would pay them, and they would go and work for you, so that you didn't have to go yourself. And the wealthy did this all the time. But anyway, the... What I'm talking about sounds 
like politics, but I don't think we understand that word politics. And the church is not political. Because the, the, in the kingdom of God, the individual is in the state of nature. It is the government that is in bondage. But it's not in bondage to the people, it's in bondage to God. But then God said to feed my sheep, take care of my people, serve the tents of my congregation. But the government of God, the Levites originally, and then the ministers that Christ appointed, were the servants of God. They worked for God. They didn't work for the people. But because they work for God, God loves the people, and so therefore we serve the people. But it's an important distinction. If we work directly for the people, the people could command us to do this and do that and all that. It doesn't work that way. We can't command you, and you can't command us. You tithe to us according to our service. If we provide a service, if we tell you the truth, if we show you the way, if we help implement that way, you should support us in that work. But it's your choice. That's between you and God. That's a different kind of politics. If you look up a definition of politics, it, I mean, of course, we have the old politics definition, you know, the comedial one, which says politics comes from two words, poly meaning many, and ticks meaning a blood-sucking insect. So that's the joke definition. But the actual definition is the art or science. So there's a choice. It can be either. It could actually be both. The art or science of government or governing. Well, in the kingdom of God, you have to govern yourself. Your rights are restored to you. And with your rights come the responsibilities. You have to govern yourself in righteousness. Because you're not just seeking the kingdom of God, but you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's still government. That's still politics. But it is, we think of politics as you go down and you, you, know, you elect a conservative or you elect a liberal or a Democrat or a Republican. And we think that's politics. Church has nothing to do with that politics. Now we'll talk about the politics of the mind and, and the moral dilemmas that such choices may present. But we're only interested in the politics of the kingdom of God. And the politics of the kingdom of God is restore every man to his family and every man to his possessions and allow him the right to choose the exousia. So the art or science of government or governing, especially the governing of a political entity. Well, see, in the kingdom of God, there is a separation of powers. You know how many separation of powers there are? I mean, in, in the United States government, there's a separation of powers in three branches of government, which is the executive, the judicial, and uh, the legislative. But in the kingdom of God, the separation of powers within every family. <laughs> so there are thousands and thousands of branches of government, and every family is one of those branches. And they come together in free assemblies to exercise the responsibility of governing themselves in righteousness. And if they come together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, they become a nation. A nation is simply people. 
I mean, the word Gentile is from the word ethnos, which means nation. The Jews were Gentiles to the Romans. And the Romans were Gentiles to the Jews. Because ethnos usually meant other nations. So, if you're really seeking the kingdom of God, you're seeking to govern yourself, to provide for yourself, to create a safety net for yourself and for others. Because you have to love others as much as you love yourself. And you're seeking to administrate and control the internal and external affairs of that government by controlling the internal and external affairs of your family. Because the family is a unit. That was instituted by God. Cain instituted the first city-state. Nimrod instituted a city-state. Pharaoh instituted a city-state. Caesar instituted... But God instituted the family. He instituted the church, too, which was these called-out group of men to facilitate that love for one another in a convocation of charity and love and concern for one another. So anyway, back to that original definition, the art or science of governing, of government or governing, especially the governing of a political entity, your family. You don't govern your neighbor's family, you govern your family, such as a nation, which is a group of families gathering together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in free assembly and the administration and control of its internal and external affairs. Administration and control of its internal and external affairs. Well, how how do you do that? External affairs, civil affairs. What does Paul say about this? What does Christ say about this? Well, we'll have to take a look at that. And we can get in deeper and deeper and deeper, but the reality is, you don't find the word politics in the Bible, but the word that politics comes from is in the Bible. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what is the keys to the kingdom? What is the keys to the government of God? And uh, how do we build the safety net of righteousness? So, I'm putting these things into different phraseology than you'd normally get on the 6 o'clock news or the 11 o'clock news. <laughs> But the reality is is that this idea of the politics of the mind, the politics of the heart, the politics of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's not like the politics of the world. It's different. So the art and science of governing or being the government of God, especially the governing of uh, a political entity, which we consider to be the family, uh, such as a nation, the administration and control of its internal and external affairs is in the hands of the individual. If the church is part of the government of God, appointed, because Jesus said, I, he's calling out these guys and he's calling them disciples, which is calling them students. They're student ministers. He's teaching them the ways of the kingdom. He's giving them instructions he's not putting out there in the parables. And they ask him, why, why do you, why are you, you know, telling us these things, but you're not telling them. You only speak to them in parables. He says, because it's given unto you to know and to understand how this works. Well, you can know how also, but you know in the practice. The practice of the righteousness of God will teach you the ways of God. Because really, if I tell you everything 
that God tells me, then you don't need God. I become God. I'm only going to tell you what God tells me to tell you, and you should hear the rest from God. I'm not trying to get you to follow me. I'm trying to get you to follow God. I'm not trying to be the moral, doctrinal dictator of your conscience. God can do that. And this is, you know, a lot of these people who think that they are atheists, and I say think that they are atheists. I'm not going to label them atheists. They may label themselves that way. I do the same with people who think they are gay. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say they're gay, like it's a fact. They're telling me they are. And so, they're telling me what they think. You know, it's it's amazing that the modern society, the, the the amongst the liberals and the people who go to take gender studies in college, do not borrow money. This is my personal advice: do not borrow money as a student loan to take gender studies in the university. <laughs> that is just a bad economic idea. But anyway, they go and they take these things, and I've actually heard. Uh, Jordan Peterson debating these college professors that say there is no difference. Uh, even the philosophers, French philosophers, there is no difference between men and women. That all the difference between men and women is a social construct. That, I mean, that, to me, that's just, I just see that and I see that's insane. That's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense at all. They believe it. They think that's true. There is a difference between men and women. A biological difference between men and women. That you cannot change by surgery. You can change the appearance. But you cannot, and you, know, you can do it with hormones and all this, you can change appearance. But it doesn't change the chromosomes in the cells. It's, it remains the same. Homosexuality is a social construct, for the most part. I mean, occasionally you'll find Quirks of nature where somebody doesn't develop all the way and there's some sort of disruption in the genetics. But that's rare, very rare. What we see today as homosexuality, whether, you know, male or female, that's a social construct and is usually the result of trauma and, and on numerous different levels. But that's another whole subject and we can get into that. Now, the point is, is that when somebody tells me that they're gay, I say, I refer to them as someone who thinks they are gay. I don't say that they are gay. It's what they think that has come to this conclusion. And the Bible is very clear that people will be turned over to unnatural use of the woman. And then they even talk about homosexuality. It's unnatural. It does, if the purpose of sexuality is reproduction, Homosexuality, homosexuality is, is not following that purpose. It's, that's, that, that is self-satisfaction. Now that's just where it is. And it says they will be given, they will be given over to these unnatural lusts. They, they can't change themselves. They think a certain way and they cannot change the way they think. I understand that. I have compassion for that. I'm not going to change that. I'm not, I'm not warring against that. I, I want to take everybody to the place where it changes you back. Again, we started out talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. They said, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? And they say, sodomy. No, that's the symptom. That if you go this unnatural way, 
And I know people who are gay and were socialists, and now they're conservatives. They they were adamant socialists and progressives, and now they're conservatives. They're still gay, but and there I even say they still think they're gay. They still think that way, but they're now conservatives. So they changed from what they were to something else. And I tell you that eventually they may change further, so they don't even think that they're gay anymore. That they they will then think that they're heterosexual if they continue on that road. It changes you. The way you go changes you. The culture matters. What you do will change you. I, I always tell the story. I think it's so great. Uh, it's in. It's a co- quote from Rube Long's book about the Oregon desert, where he says many men came to the desert with the intention of changing it and were changed by it. And the reality is, is that our the way we think should change the way we act. And the way we act will change the way we think. We live in a cause and effect universe. So if you think the responsibility of government belongs to the legislative, the judicial, and the uh, executive branch, that's going to change you. And that's what, go back to Polybius. Go read our article in Polybius at Preparing You. And we show this quote of Polybius. And he's telling you that the people were changed by the circumstances of the society they constructed. Homosexuality is a construction of society. It, it, and your your relationships within that society. Your relationships with other people. It's not natural. It comes about because of that construction. And if you change your relationship to society. And you change your heart to humbleness and forgiveness and thanksgiving and these things that Christ talked about. It will change you back again to something else. That we are affected by what we affect amongst society. And so that's an important cosmic reality that we need to understand whether you're studying quantum or string theory. That... Things are automatically altered by what we do and what we think and what we think and what we do. They're interrelated. So anyway, back to this idea of politics. In the kingdom of God, the government and the responsibilities of governing is in the hands of the individual. So what's the church? I said the church, Jesus called out these guys, called them his little flock. The ones that stayed with them. And he appoints unto them a kingdom. And there were 12 of these apostles. And their families. And there were 120 in the upper room. Why 120? Because they were already sitting down in the tens. So you had 10 families. 10 names for every apostle. So that's 120 in the upper room. This is This is a governmental gathering. This is the government of God. But it's a government that was restricted from exercising authority one over the other. That's that's an important thing to understand. It's not like the governments of the world who do exercise authority. The legislature makes the law. The executive uh, branch enforces the law. And the judiciary judges you. 
and decides what is good and evil. And they can actually overrule the law if they think it's beyond the scope of the legislature. But in the kingdom of God, all those responsibilities are in the hands of the individual. And as our job to protect the rights of our neighbor as much as our own. So if somebody infringes upon the rights of our neighbor, we can actually get together with our other neighbors and seize them and try them in a jury of their peers. And there's a lot of little rules and and customs in, in that process of ordire for picking that jury and everything. But it's people making individual choices to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. People want to just go back to that status, that natural status of being free souls under God without taking back the responsibilities of the internal and external affairs of government. You know, they don't want to provide a safety net within their society. I mean, they will squeal like a stuck pig when they have a need, but they aren't coming together in the character of Christ to serve one another. So, first thing you would want to do is gather together in, in, in a congregation of ten families. And the first thing you'd want to see your ministers do is connecting you with 90 other families and a thousand other families so that your safety net is a safety net where the warp and weft of your net are tied together with knots of righteousness and love and faith and hope and the perfect law of liberty. So under that definition of politics, uh, they also have a definition that activities are affairs engaged in by the government, politicians or political parties. Now there's an or there, not and. So, the government of God has to be within your heart of the individuals. And the activities and affairs of that individual are brought together in free assemblies. That's a different kind of government than what you see out there in the world. But you can implement that right now, just like the socialists could all become socialists right now. If they just gather together in their own little group and they all have their one purse and then they... They all work together on their farms and factories together. They can all share and share alike through the power of whatever government they elect, which is what socialism is all about. They can do that right now. They don't have to wait for a majority vote. They don't have to change the legislation. And they don't have to impose their ideas on anybody else. They just gather together voluntarily and do it. Just do it. (laughs) Well, it's the same thing with the kingdom. Which is not a common purse. It's restoring every man to his family. Now if you can't do that. Within this system now. What makes you think that you can. Make it happen. If the system were to collapse. You can start right now. Walking in the ways of righteousness. And that's what the early church was doing. They weren't kicked out. They were all still in the system of Judea. And we, we, you read our article about idiotes, uh, or idiots, or Christians idiots. What does that mean? Now, of course, I'm not calling Christians idiots, because the word idiotes didn't have anything to do with being stupid. It had to do with being non-participators. They didn't look to Pharaoh for their straw. They looked to one another to help one another. They, they started that process. Of becoming the safety net of their own society. They aid the the faith emergency ministry auxiliary of their own society. 
And that's what the early Christians were doing when they gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And so as Rome collapsed, they had a system in place, which is why Christians prospered as Rome collapsed. Because they were actually following what Christ said. Governance refers to, and this is another definition, all processes of governing, whether undertaken by a government, market, or network. Whether over a family, tribe, formal or informal organizations or territory, or whether through laws, norms, powers, or language. That's right out of the Wikipedia. So, the church is one form of governance which leaves the power of choice in your hands. And you have an effect on the actual political or corporal part of the government of God, which is those called out that were appointed a kingdom, that little flock. He says, I appoint unto you a kingdom. You have power over that because you control the purse strings of your own family. You don't control the family next to you. You just control your family's purse strings. So you can tithe to the minister of your choice. If you think he's doing a good job, if you think he's not doing a good job, you you don't have to tie to. And you amaze, you will be amazed at how much power there is in that power. That exousia, your right to choose who to give to and who not to give to. And you can start that right now just by gathering in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And you can start attending to the political affairs of your nation, of your peculiar people. And whatever land they live on. You know, if you go back to Paul and you read Philippians 1, verse 27, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Your conversation. Is that what you say? Is that what you talk about? What word is there? Is that in the Greek, that word conversation? That's polytumai. Polytumai. Poly. From the where we get the word politics. And how is that defined? If you were to look that up in Thayer's. It's defined as uh, to be a citizen. To administer civil affairs of that city. So what does he say in that whole verse? Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what he was saying. That's That was the news that he was bringing. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will be provided unto you. So your conversation, your your citizenry, your administration of civil affairs has to be according to the gospel of Christ. Which... Who commanded you to sit down in the tens, uh, at one hundreds and thousands. So, you sit down in that group and you share amongst each other. You serve one another in righteousness. That's the gospel of Christ. That's the command of Christ. That's the doctrine of Christ. He said that. And I'm amazed at the number of people who says, I don't know where he says that. <laughs> it's in there. 
it's in there. There's a lot of things that we're going to bring up that other people will not tell you, but it's in there. And if you can go, you know, we have a page at Preparing You on Politics, and you can go and, and, and read what that has to say. But that's, it's there. You just have to see it uh, and and look at it. And have the humility where you'd be willing to look at it. But anyway, he says, only let your conversation, your citizenship, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, which is the kingdom of God is at hand. That you have the responsibility of being the government of God. You have the responsibility of being the safety net. The church is not there to give you something to do on Sunday. It's not there to make you feel uh, good. It's not there merely for social fellowship. It's the polytume of the kingdom. The administration of the civil affairs. That's the definition. Poly from polis. You're the city on the hill. In Philippians 3.20, we see, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He was going to send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit come into you. Polytuma uh, is the word we see there translated conversation. The other one is polytume. This is polytuma, which is defined the administration of civil affairs or of the commonwealth. Now, the commonwealth of God, he has returned every man to his family and every man to his possessions. Now, the reality is is that you don't own your house. We talked about this. You have a legal title. A legal title does not include ownership. It is an apparent title that carries with it no beneficial interest. That's a quote right out of the Black's Law Dictionary telling you the legal title does not include the ownership. That's why you have to pay taxes. on You stop paying taxes for a couple of years, they take the whole property away. And in most cases, they sell the whole property and they keep the change. In Oregon, they actually cancel your title if you don't pay taxes for a couple of years. So that doesn't sound like you own it. No. Go back to the Prince of Liechtenstein. Their territory, their property. You're back in the bondage of Egypt again. And you've gotten there because we have strayed from the ways of Christ. Now we have to return to the ways of Christ. This is why we see in Ephesians uh, 2.19.22 Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And of the household of God. He didn't say you were saints. He said you're fellow citizens with the saints. So the idea of, we have this word saints, we think, oh, well, they're good people. The saints comes from those who are holy. The word holy means separate. The apostles were to be in the world, but not of the world. They were to be separate. They had all kinds of restrictions, not all kinds, but a few restrictions put on them by Jesus Christ to be separate. To form this corporate government to serve the people. That's what the church is. This corporate government to serve the people. Now, if you think the Pope is serving the people, you ought to become Catholic. If you think he's not serving the people, if he's sending you to men who exercise authority for your daily ministration, 
of welfare at the hands of men who exercise authority, then that may not be Christian. If your Methodist ministers are sending you to men to exercise authority to take care of your parents so that you do no more ought for your parents. Oh, you do a little bit for them, but you actually are dependent upon the governments who exercise authority and those governments are borrowing money against the future of your children to pay for your parents because the money is already gone. People stop telling me that they're pilfering your trust fund. From the beginning, there has been no Social Security trust fund. You have been listening to fake news. <laughs> we can show you in the law. From the, there is no division of funds. There is no separate trust fund. There never has been. But anyway, go read about it and have the humility to find out what's really going on. Look for the facts. Look for the information. We've, I've spent a lifetime and other men are doing the same thing. Trying to share with you the actual facts. That's why there are thousands of footnotes on our web pages and in our free books that you can look these things up. You don't want to be strangers to one another. You want to be one people under the denomination of Christ in a free assembly, not some corporate church that you have to belong to. You can't belong to the church. Unless you want to become a minister of the church, then you belong to God. You don't belong to the church because we don't exercise authority over you. We can't. We can either walk with you or not walk with you. That's it. But we can't make up rules. We have no legislation. We're we're trying to find and agree upon and come into one accord on the rules that Christ already laid down. And this is where he buildeth together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That's where we're going. But anyway, you'll have to join us on the network at hisholychurch.org or preparingyou.com. And and we'll gather together and start doing what Christ told us to do from the beginning. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.